tell about it. I don't quite sound uh, like I normally do. Sound like a trophy for the uh, little rascal. All right. I am fighting a cold, so I start coughing and have to drink water. I apologize. Turn it with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 2. Turn to Mark chapter 2, if you would, and let's uh, jump back into our series that we have been going through. We're going through a series in the Gospel of Mark called Rediscovering Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. So we're picking back up this morning. Um, so let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you that um, God, you delight in transforming, taking people who seem like focus cases. It's really a all and transforming God, we thank you for that. We have the power within ourselves to fix ourselves, to reform ourselves, to reform others. So it's really all the work of grace and it's all the work of you. And I thank you that you use your work to transform us. And that your word is powerful, it's living in Lord, would you help us open our eyes, our ears, and hear your words. Praise the name of you. Mark chapter 2, let's read God's word together. Jesus went out again to the the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call for the righteous, but sinners. Well, we're picking back up on our series of rediscovering Jesus from the book of Mark. We saw a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, that Jesus made this astounding claim that he could come and forgive sins. And the religious leaders today, remember that when Jesus said uh, the four friends lowered their, their friend down on the mat, right? Uh, dug their way through the roof, lowered it down, and right in front of Jesus as he was teaching. And Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. And, and the religious figures, the authorities of the day, freaked out. They freaked out. They, they, they called Jesus out even on blasphemy charges because he was equating himself with God. And so there's, we're going to begin to see this last few weeks ago and in the next, really the next several stories, that there's this underlying theme in the Gospel of Mark. There's this con- conflict brewing between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day over the character of God and how can Jesus forgive or offer forgiveness so in the next two weeks, I'm going to try to show you two things, and we'll see the first thing today. And the first thing is this. Uh, Jesus Christ loves sinners. Jesus Christ loves sinners. And he loves to heal sinners and draw people to himself. And then next week, I hope this, and we'll probably see this a little bit today. Next week is Jesus Christ hates religion. That's a strong word in that, but Jesus Christ hates religion. And refuses to reform religion, but instead replaces it on stuff. And new life can only be found in them. So we'll begin to see that a little bit today, more into that next week. So let me just break up our story this morning that we just read into, into three points. Let me get past what the soft can give you three points. So three points, here they are. I'm going to write it down. The first point is this is the friendliness of Jesus towards sinners. The friendliness of Jesus 
towards him. The second point is the opposition of the religious leaders. And then the third point is the staggering offer of grace. So the prudence of Jesus towards him, the opposition of the religious leaders, and then the third thing is the staggering offer of grace. So let's find out about the friendliness of Jesus towards sinners. So Jesus and his disciples had gone out by the sea, uh, likely to find a little bit of rest after an intense time of healing and teaching. And they were coming back from the ocean back to Capernaum to preach and teach. And on their way back into town, Mark tells us that Jesus encounters this guy's tax collector named Levi, the son of Alphaeus, who was sitting at his tax booth. And Jesus approaches Levi and gives him this invitation to follow him. Now, it's, it's easy to gloss over this, this person, tax collector, this phrase that describes who Levi is, but there is a significance here that Mark wants us to see about tax collectors. So who are tax collectors? Well, tax collectors were on the lowest run of society. They were aided by everybody. Think about the IRS today. Do you have to have the IRS? Do you really love the IRS? I mean, you don't go around talking about how much you love the IRS, do you? I guess you could pay your bill. You know, I mean, do you love it? Who likes doing taxes? Okay. Pretty point through. So, tax collectors back then were hated. And I guess some IRS tax collectors aren't necessarily loved today, but back then, tax collectors were especially hated because many of them were Jewish. They were Jewish tax collectors who worked for the Roman government. Now, why is that a problem? Here's the problem. Well, first of all, Capernaum. Most towns, most cities back then had one main road that worked as an artery that ran through that city. And to go from town to town, you would buy goods in one certain area and you would bring those goods back to your own town. So you would have to travel the main, the only road coming in and out of that town, the main artery of trade, if you will. So Jesus and his disciples, as they're coming back into Capernaum, if you've ever been, uh, first thing I did some ministry down in Mexico years ago, and we, we entered into Mexico to the border town of Juarez, in El Paso, not the prettiest town in the world, I don't know, not a very beautiful place, but it, it was astounding. You, you go in, into the, the country of Mexico at the border, and you got vendors lined up along the Strait of the States, and then you get to the dreaded border patrol, and you're like, oh, nobody likes going to the border patrol. And then coming back from Mexico into the States, tons of folks, you know, you're sitting in your car, and you're waiting, waiting to come through, and you got folks knocking on your window offering candy and drinks and that kind of thing. So. It's kind of that atmosphere that your, Jesus and his disciples are coming back into this town and it's almost like a border patrol area and there's vendors there and there's a tax collector sitting in. And the tax collectors, like Levi, were these middlemen who would collect sales tax on anything that you purchased or, or you were just bringing back in to Capernaum. And they were hated by the Jews. And here's why. The Jews didn't like the Romans either. And the Romans and their influence were beginning to take over the Jewish territory. And not only began, did Romanist influence begin to encroach on their land and their country, but also their culture, Roman culture, which is very much so tied to Greek culture, was beginning to encroach and influence the Jewish culture. And they didn't like it. They were fighting that because the Jewish culture is Gentile. I mean, the Roman and Greek culture was a Gentile culture. It was pagan culture. And they were seen as immoral and, and unclean. And then how would you like another culture coming in and taking over your culture? That's how much they could not stand the Roman uh, opposition and Roman culture. 
And so, when there was a Jewish individual who forsook everything and became a tax collector for the Roman government, that person was hated more than anyone. And so these tax collectors were middlemen. What they would do is they would make bids to the Roman government to take up a tax for a, a particular area of time. So Levi would say of them, the tax collector for Bonatot County, and pretend that there's no other roads in Bonatot except for 220. And you get off of 81, and as soon as you pull off 81 on the 220, guess who's sitting there? Levi, the tax collector. And he's going to look through everything that you just bought from Target and, and Staples and all that, and he is going to tax you. And he's already paid his tax to the Roman government, and the Roman government has turned a blind eye, and Levi can then tax you on whatever he wants to tax you and charge you as much as he wants. And he got filthy rich. Filthy rich doing it. And so you can begin to see that these guys were hated by the Jews. They were so despised and hated by the Jews that they were literally on the bottom line of society. In fact, Jewish law tagged them that tax collectors were, treat, were to be treated as convicted murderers or thieves, according to Jewish law. Jewish law also said that if you became a tax collector, then you were forever disqualified. Even if you left that job as a tax collector, you were forever disqualified of being a witness or bearing witness in the court. If you were a Jewish tax collector, Jewish law demanded that you be excommunicated from your synagogue and never be allowed to be welcomed back in. And Jewish authorities pushed those families of people who were tax collectors to uh, dis or excommunicate their family members and never have anything else to do with that family member. That was how much they were despised and hated. As a matter of fact, even to touch a tax collector would deem you unclean. We saw that a few weeks ago when Jesus touched this leper, he, he uh, got on the mat and healed him. That was a big deal. You know, it would make sense to not touch somebody with a disease, but to touch somebody just because of their job and make sure they're clean. You can see how low, how low these guys were seen, how low they were viewed. So they were the bottom of the society. And then Jesus, Mark tells us that Jesus makes this beeline right to Levi and invites him to become one of his disciples. The lowest of the low. Think about this. Now Levi, he, he was rich, right? He was amassed so much wealth, but he was alone. He had left his family. He had left behind everything that he had known to become a tax collector. The lure of wealth had made him leave behind everything. And we don't know about this family. But here he is, targeted by the God of the universe. He's targeted by the God of the universe and loved by Jesus. And Jesus touches him in the deepest, darkest place of his soul. And all of a sudden, he's encountering Jesus. And all of the voices that perhaps he had heard, I'm just postulating this, but I imagine if you had left your family, left what you've been familiar with, and even though you're amassing all of this wealth, all of the wealth in the world is not enough to numb the pain and the shame of all of the leaving that behind in order to make all of this So the shame of his soul, the voices of the shame of his soul drowning in the mouth, but the shame uh, that everybody else pronounces upon him. I mean, think about this. I mean, he lived in the same town with his family. I'm sure he saw cousins and he saw neighbors and perhaps siblings, maybe even parents, who didn't even pay attention to him in the time. That's the kind of shame. And yet, perhaps for the first time, Levi heard the voice of his 
at least for a long time. And Jesus gives him this invitation to follow me and says, Levi, you're forgiven. And I like you, Levi. And I love you, and I forgive you, and I want to be with you so much that I'm inviting you to become one of my disciples. That's staggering, isn't it? So Jesus gives Levi this invitation. That's why Mark paints this picture. It's more important for us to see how much these tax collectors were despised because the invitation that Jesus gives to Levi is scandalous. Especially in the religious leaders, it's scandalous. Now think about this. All the other religions of the world don't freely give out invitations. Think about this. Just remember, all the other religions were systems, philosophical systems in the world, specifically religions, do not give out invitations freely, at least initially. In order for you to, to get on board, you have to do something initially, right? You're, First, you have to, to placate your wow, placate your gods, little g, first by obedience. Or you have to, to demonstrate good behavior. You have to become or begin to reform yourself to become more moral or more right. And then perhaps you would be invited to take the next step, do the next thing from that religion. You see there, and I am indebted to the engineer of the train for giving me this time. I told you I was it. Metric. <laughs> I talked to you in a new word. You did. It's a great word. It's called a great classic in the back. Thank you. There is a metric. A metric is, you can tell me if I'm wrong later, guys. But I think a metric is a system of measurement, if you will. The way, the way you measure something, whether it's performance or goals or something like that. Well, I think that there is a worthiness metric. That's what I call it. A worthiness metric that all other religions and at a minimum, this worthiness metric of all other religions would say that you, you have to be the one to initiate. They don't initiate. You initiate. And you have to demonstrate some level of commitment and proof that you are reforming. Okay? That's what other religions would say. And in fact, we even see, think about this way. We even see this worthiness metric operating in our realm of society. We use this worthiness metric all the time in our relationships. I'll just give you a quick example. Think about wedding invitations, right? You, when you send out a wedding invitation, perhaps you're getting married or you know somebody's got married and you've been married, you are married, and you send out wedding invitations or you receive a wedding invitation from a friend or a family member, you are deemed worthy, right, to receive that wedding invitation. There is a worthiness metric in sending out wedding invitations. Are they family? That's are they a friend? Yes. Are they a co-worker? Maybe they were my boy scout leader, my girl scout leader. They were a mentor to me. Oh, um, you know, there's Uncle Joe over here. He is a jerk. But he's still a family member, so he makes the worthiness metric because he's in the family. You see that? There is a worthiness metric in, in, in all society and even in our relationships. And the power to invite is a power thing. Isn't it? Didn't anybody excuse The middle school high schoolers in college. If you're on Facebook, you ever not been invited to the event before? Ouch! You ever been there? You're like, well, so and so got invited. And it ruins your day. And you talk about all your stuff. So and so's there. I didn't invite you. The power of invite is powerful, isn't it? You can make somebody's day, or you can ruin somebody's year by excluding them. The power to invite is very powerful. Then, about this Levi in the realm of religion and Levi in the realm of society, 
doesn't deserve an invitation, does it? There was no worthiness metric that Levi fit in at all. And yet Jesus gives him an invitation. He gives him this invitation. It was scandalous. And by the way, Levi tells about this. He came Matthew and most biblical scholars believe that and though all the Gospels technically are anonymous, the most false attribute Levi as who became Matthew as the writer of the Gospel. Matthew. Pretty cool, huh? And so when did he need just a little private trade here? What did he do to have known Levi son of Alphaeus? And then when he encountered Jesus, to now know Matthew the father. It would have been precious to know that Matthew, the, or Levi, the tax collector, collector of taxes, to become Matthew, follower of Jesus. To see somebody so captivated by the love of Jesus, so transformed by the love of Jesus, that he is a completely different person. We have a new name. That is the power of the gospel. Folks. Beloved, I hope you understand. Everybody look at me. Beloved, I hope you understand the power of the gospel. Even in your own life. Well, we can stop here, but, but Mark even leads us to a greater scandal that happens apart from this. Look at verse 15. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Notice Mark uses this word many to iterate. He reiterates just who was at this party and just what kind of party it was. Levi invited all of his friends, who were his friends. You know, two birds with a feather flock together, right? Levi didn't have any friends, probably from his former life. So who were his friends? What did Mark tell us? Other tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> Can you imagine? Just, what would it have been like to be in that room? That would have been something else. And so he invites all of his friends to come and meet this guy who just transformed him. Levi had just thrown what one commentator said, a conversion party. Isn't that cool? He just had a conversion party. I just got saved. I just got converted. I want you to come and meet this man, Jesus. So he throws a conversion party, and there are these many Levites there, these tax collectors, these many citizens sinners. And I want to pause here for a minute and talk a little bit about God's hand of providence. God's hand of providence. Providence of God is not some doctrine that we just kind of find in between the lines of Scripture. The providence of God is the most fundamental, priceless, precious, vulnerable soul of the doctrine that we find all throughout Scripture. Because the providence of God is like a bullseye on this passage. Let's, let's see how that happens here. Because Jesus was purposeful in his providence. He didn't come and meet Matthew, the Levite, of But he purposely pursued Levi. And he purposely moved Levi to call this party of a conversion party to orchestrate all the different players at this party. Think about who was at this party. It was Jesus. It was Levi and, uh, and Luke says many twice. I mean, Mark says many twice. I will know tons. I mean, a room full of sinners and tax collectors. The lowest of the love. All of his friends were probably criminals. Unless he paid people to be his friend, which he could have. Everybody in his room were criminals and tax collectors and Jesus and his disciples and the religious leaders of the day. All packed in this room. 
Tell me that's not You see, Jesus orchestrated everybody in this room. Incredible. Here's what Thomas Watson Puritan said about God's promise. Stephen, what is God's promise? You need to understand this. He gives a great, not simple, but precious definition. He says this. He says that God, God orders all the events of the world. I gave you a call worship this morning that we are in this parentheses from creation to the coming back of Jesus. We are in the parentheses. And within that parentheses, the good news, folks, is that God orders all of life. There is nothing within that parentheses that is outside of God's permanent power. So he says that God orders all the events of life after the counsel of his will to his own glory, Watson says. And his glory being the ultimate end of all of his actions and the center where all the lines problems meet. The providence of God is the queen and the governess of the world, he says. The providence of God, God is, it is the eye which sees and the hand which turns the wheels of the whole universe. God is not like the master craftsman who builds a beautiful house, he says, and then leaves it. But he is like the pilot. Who steers the ship of this whole creation? It's not promise. Everything within this world, everything within your life, suffering, trials, joys, the blessings, even the temptations, even the sin, God in some way in his providence is knitting all of these things together. And here's the incredible thing all of those lines of providence in your life meet in Jesus. That's what he's saying. This room with all these sinners and disciples and the religious leaders and even the followers of Jesus, the crowds, all of these lines of people and attitudes and sins and convictions and everything cross and meet in the person of Jesus. And so here was what divine providence looked like in this room. Jesus wanted to go deeper into the story of Levi, right? But he also wanted to go deeper into the story of Levi's friends. And he also wanted to go deeper into the story of the religious leaders. And he also wanted to go deeper into the story of the disciples. Oh, yes, but also he wants to go deeper into the story of you. You're an extension of his party right here this morning. You see, saving Levi wasn't enough. Don't limit God's providence by just saving Levi. No. Jesus was bringing into the wrestling ring of this banquet. I couldn't think of any other better definition. I know it sounds crazy, but Jesus was bringing into the I used to watch wrestling when I was a kid growing up. That's probably why. Jesus was bringing into the wrestling ring of this banquet the broken, the sinful, the disciples, the religious, the self-righteous, the everyday crowds who followed Jesus, the people, the place, the time he appointed. And no one was going to leave this conversion party, this wrestling ring, the same as they came in. You see, God's divine providence is working on infinite lives in your life. But God's divine providence is working in infinite levels in the life of those that you love. And God's providence is working in infinite levels in the life of those that you are concerned about spiritually. His providence is weaving within and without all of our lives, and we know that we have no idea how big His love is. We have no idea how powerful His providence is. He is working in all of creation. Jesus says, I have come, behold, I will make all things new. He 
says, I hold all things in my hand. Colossians says that all things have been created in, through, and by me, Jesus says. All of creation with all types of people, he is in providence and has power of providence over them all. Marcy Spruill said, God doesn't roll dice. Nothing happens by chance. God's not just rolling dice. He is infinitely involved in everything He upholds all things. He governs all things. Even when we don't like healthcare stuff. We go to prayer. He governs all things. He directs everything to its appointed end. He directed all of this. This party with Levi, the conversion party. Jesus directed all of it to that point. And to the end. He does this all the time in every circumstance. And guess what? He always does it for his glory. And for your joy. And this is why the religious leaders opposed Jesus. Because they couldn't control him. They couldn't control Jesus. They couldn't predict Jesus. He was not the kind of Messiah they were expecting. We want a Messiah who will deliver us from the own world. Deliver us from people like Levi. We can't control God. And that was one of the reasons. And that leads us to our second point this morning, the opposition of the religious leaders. Part tells us that Levi was throwing his conversion party and Jesus was reclining at his table with him. And that meant itself very intimate. They didn't eat like we do today, sitting in a chair. They would recline literally where the table was about as low or as high as the stage. And they literally would lay down and before him eat. And so can you imagine laying down with people and eating? Does that seem uncomfortable to you? Yes. You're already like, hmm. That's intimate, isn't it? Jesus was laying down the host of tax collectors and sinners. And what does Mark tell us in verse 16? And the scribes, the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So who are these religious leaders? Well, they were the Pharisees. They were descendants of these people called the Hasidim. And their name, Pharisees, literally meant the faithful. And so, right, they were known for one thing. The Pharisees were known for one thing, their devotion to God's law, the Torah, the Old Testament. And so, the Pharisees, it was their primary religious, civic, and social duty to uphold God's law with the hope, right, that they were going to reform the Roman pagan culture around them and also with the hope to please God of the Old Testament, which, by the way, they didn't realize that God of the Old Testament was right there <laughs> and usher in the reign of this Messiah. If we can just be good enough, if we can just reform culture enough, perhaps God will have blessing and send the Messiah to come and kind of do the final death blow to all the mess from our lives. And so how they ate and how they slept and who they were with and how they relaxed or how they rested and the type of work and how that work was done, everything, how they even ate, everything had to be screened through God's law. And on top of that, because they, they and, and you know what? The Pharisees did care about the glory of God, though it was misdirected and evil. They did care about the glory of God in some way. And so in order to care, because they didn't, you know, in some ways, logically concluded, they probably, we've got to protect God's glory. It's up to us to do that. We've got to do that But we've got to take care of God's glory, and so we are going to create 613 additional laws 613 additional laws to hedge God's law, protect 
protect God's love, protect His glory, and to protect ourselves from messing up so that we don't bring His glory to God. So they, they created these additional laws on top of God's law. So when Jesus was here at this table and leave ourselves eating with them, the Pharisees had a category for that. It broke every single law on the book. They didn't know what to do with that. They didn't know what to do with Jesus. He was violating every social, societal, and religious conviction. But the fact that Jesus would have an intimate table fellowship packed full of partners and sinners, and then you contrast that with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and their condemnation of Jesus, folks, this gives us a powerful picture of the radical nature of grace. See, the tradition of the elders of the Jewish law, the elders, the Pharisees would have to go and buy food from a special market, a special place that had been set apart, and that's where Jews today get the word kosher, right? Orthodox Jews today is taught to buy kosher food that has been set apart from special places, produced in a special way. That's just a carryover from what the Pharisees were doing there. And so it blew their mind that Jesus was eating with these tax collectors and sinners because it wasn't set apart. The Pharisees, they could only eat in the presence of other Pharisees. And they would have to even tie a portion of their food before they ever put a bite in their mouth. Everything in their lifestyle, everything in their lifestyle gave them the justification that they needed to make a clear distinction between them and others. I get this. Everything in their life allowed them to justify the fact that they can make a clear distinction between themselves and others. Between themselves and everybody else. And they would put up as many barriers as possible to keep themselves undefined. Does that sound a little bit like how we often live our lives? I know for the Pharisees, they were fearful of being out of control. That's why there was opposition to Jesus. But we can't control him. He's equal tax collectors and sinners. And we can't control this. They were fearful of other people and their influence. Not like that. We can't control our loved ones. Are you frustrated about that? You're fearful of other people's influence, fearful of the influence of others on your kids. There's nothing wrong with that, but we're not. We begin to make clear distinctions like them between others and ourselves, and we will groom our rightness or groom our self-righteousness in order to do that. We put up barriers and walls just like the Pharisees did so that we don't have to get to know somebody else. Maybe you're just afraid of someone who's so different than you. Just see here. Everything in, his, in Jesus, everything in his infinite providence is transforming and reconciling this fear and self-righteousness. Jesus refused to reform Christians. Jesus refused to reform their religion. Jesus refuses to reform the Reformation is what you shall. He wants to go far enough. And he will not bring the reform that you want. He doesn't want to reform you. Jesus wants to radically transform you. And the amazing thing is that his providence, Romans 8 said, he works everything together in your life for your good to transform you. He works everything together for the blessing for the church. For his good. Pharisees wanted a controlled and measurable religion. Let me have my worthiness measured. I can measure you and I can measure myself. I'm doing good. 
versus Jesus' wild and unpredictable prophets. And here, there's even a greater reason that the religious leaders opposed Jesus. In fact, they wanted to kill Jesus. We'll see that next week. Early on in Jesus' ministry, they were ready to kill him. So this leads us to our third point. Here at this banquet, this crazy mix of people, this conversion party, we see was the backdrop of this staggering offer of grace. You know, if you were to read through the Gospels, just quickly, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see it's very commonplace that all the writers of the Gospels say that there was this opposition between Jesus and the religious leaders all the time because Jesus hung out. I mean, who did Jesus hang out with the most? Other than his disciples who were abandoned losers anyway, they were all a mess. Who did he hang out with? Tax collectors? Prostitutes? Criminals? The marginalized? Sinners? So, was it Jesus' association with, with these kind of people that most defended the Pharisees? I don't think it was. I think that the Pharisees, these religious leaders were offended not by what Jesus did or not by who he was with, but they were most offended by what Jesus didn't do, what Jesus didn't say. Because all Mark tells us is what? The Pharisees complain, why aren't he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And they go to the disciples and ask them that. And all Mark tells us that Jesus says that he reclined with them, that he ate with them, and then he leveled the charge from the Pharisees. He said to the Pharisees, those who are well have no need of physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Period. I didn't come to call the righteous and sinners who repent and do these things and get themselves ready. He just says sinners. Period. Humor me just for one second. What, what would it have taken for these religious leaders to, to, to do a dinner with Levi and his friends? I, I know they wouldn't have done that right because they were completely vacant. But humor me for a minute. What would it have taken for the Pharisees to, to host a dinner with these sinners? They would have had to do so many things, right? They would have had to prepare the room, find a set-apart place. They would have to wash everything in a prepared in a special way. They would have to buy food from trusted sources, vendors. But the biggest stipulation in order for these Pharisees to do dinner with the tax collectors and sinners would have been this. Just pretend they sent out an invitation to this dinner to Levi and his friends, and written on that dinner invitation to Levi and his friends, it would say, time, place, and on the bottom of this paragraph, before you come, you need to start reforming yourself. Before you come, you need to get your act together and stop being a criminal, and stop stealing, and stop cheating, stop greedy, being greedy, stop this and that. We will have dinner with you on condition that you begin to change your lives. So what did Jesus not do? He never tells the sinners around him to repent. In fact, curiously, the word repentance is almost absent from the gospel of The scandal of the story is this. That these people around Jesus, the lowest of the low, Jesus did not put up any kind of condition, any kind of barrier, any kind of distinction that they would have to meet before he would eat them, before he would love them. There was no call to repentance before Jesus loved and accepted them. There was no call to repent and then only to feel accepted and love. He wasn't there. He just went and he ate with them 
even if they had begun to repent of their sinning lifestyles, they would have done so not to gain Jesus' faith. They would have done so because he loved them, even when they were in the midst of the sin. You see, it's no coincidence. Coincidence is the complete opposite of God's problems. It's no coincidence what Jesus is doing here and showing us. It all started when he began to initiate the Levi. Levi was just sitting around his own business, wasn't he? Jesus initiated with Levi, and then he began to initiate with his friends, and he initiated with you. He doesn't always wait for us. He doesn't wait for us to initiate. He doesn't wait for us to, he doesn't wait to initiate. We have to repent, we begin to reform ourselves, and then God initiates. He comes to us in our mess, in our wretchedness. Jesus always makes the first move. In the life of an unbeliever, guess what? It doesn't have to stop saying, okay, well, now you're a Christian, you've been saved, now I will initiate. No. God's providence dictates that God is always the initiator. And he is initiating from this parenthesis, beginning of creation, to the end. Providence. And God the initiator of silence. You see, he always makes the first move. And the first toast of this party didn't come from Levi. The first toast came from Jesus. Jesus was the true host of his party. And the whole reason for him to host such a party as this was to break bread outcasts. And perhaps speak a word of forgiveness to people who would never hear from you and hear the word. You are the food. See, this meal, this is this meal is the anticipation. It's a foreshadow. Now think about another meal that's going to happen a few years down the road in the life of Jesus. This meal is an anticipation of the meal he had with his disciples the night before he was betrayed and crucified. I found a point that, that Stone wrote before he died, thinking about what Levi would have said after he had found Jesus. Imagining what Levi would have said after he encountered Jesus. He says, I asked the Lord to heal me and make me whole. But he laid his hand instead, teaching me humility. I asked him to let me keep my riches, but instead he impoverished me to teach me to trust him. I asked him to let me run my life and do his wishes tomorrow. But he admonished me that there may never be a I asked him to let me enjoy the sin of pride and material things, but he took them away from making the kingdom of them alone. He gave me nothing that I asked for and everything that I wanted. And I have no choice but to trust him with everything now to eternity. Jesus has opened this banqueting table to you. He's invited you to die. And I have to say this. This is what evangelism is. This period What we just read that Jesus made That's what it is. Evangelism is as simple as this. You, you don't have to have the gift of hospitality. You don't have to be marked too. You don't have to. All you gotta have is a roof over your head and crackers on the table and a neighbor. 
700 steps to your neighbor's house, not going to say, come and eat crap food. Come and eat more crap food. That's evangelism. It's the, it's the gift of opening up your home to people and eating. Start with your neighbor. Invite a coworker. Invite your boss over. Ooh, boss. Invite your cousin that you don't keep up with. And just You need food and a pulse. Okay, very good, really. Time, food, and a willingness to invite fellow sinners into your story. And trust that Jesus will call the dinner to order. You see, it's all about His timing in your life. It's all about His timing if you've ever sit across the table from you in their life. It's all about His power and glory, working all things together to spread across the table and even you. Working all things together to terminate into his glory and virtual life. Even simple dinner to coffee with a friend of his glory and glory. Let's pray. Well, Lord, these are some staggering truths um, that really do rock us to the floor. No wonder the disciples wrestle with this. No wonder the Pharisees wrestle with this. Because we, we cannot catch a tiger by its tail.
So in order to not bring judgment and condemnation upon yourself, let me ask you to let me go in the past. Can you just come and say, what do you want? Do you not know me? Do you not know me? I don't know you. Save me. Maybe your child is not yet a community member of this church and has not stepped for the old and been interviewed and accepted in the membership of the false friend. Again, let me, again, not to exclude them, make them feel bad, it's a great opportunity for you to allow the dogs to ask and encourage them and begin to have that conversation about where they stand with Jesus. Because remember, Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He sat at that table with his disciples to know the full well that we have to stay. He would be taking the time. Your sin and my sin are past every future. The plans and die a criminal's death for He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our victories and the punishment that brought us peace with God. No condemnation was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. To the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, symbolized his body that was the showing on the cross. He took this bread and he broke it. And when he had given thanks, he said, This is my body given and broken for you and your freedom. Father, we thank you for your willingness to take our sin and your sin. We thank you that your body is broken for us. Now we ask for Jesus to be set apart for this bread and accept our sacred gifts that we might always, always remember and stay sweet.
Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is for you covenant to my blood. As long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, proclaim the Lord's death. Again, I know that sounds grievous and dark, but you're not proclaiming death, you're really proclaiming life. Because it's through his death 